tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Looking at the same thing everyone else sees, and seeing it in a way no one else before has, is just one of the many reasons he took a property that failed almost the day it opened and turned it into the most successful gaming company in Vegas history. Yet, despite all he accomplished, I wouldn't be surprised if you've never even heard of the man referred to by many as one of the most influential in the evolution of Las Vegas. This is Bill Bennett's story. Formal education bored Bill Bennett, despite being very intelligent. It meant so little to him, he didn't even show up to get his high school diploma. He tried community college, but only lasted one year before dropping out. After that, he joined the Navy and went to fight at the end of World War II. An example of how intelligent he was when the subject interested him, when Bill Bennett took the Navy's pilot's exam, he did so well, they thought he cheated. So they made him take the test again this time orally, and he scored even higher. Bill would later credit the discipline he earned in the Navy as one of the core reasons for his success. After the military, Bill began working for a furniture store in Arizona. He studied everything he could about the industry and not only discovered how to cater to a specific market, but within a year, he bought out his boss. Unlike so many who ran businesses, Bill knew better than to think that he had all the answers. He enjoyed interacting with his customers and learning what they wanted so he could give it to them. Within a few years, he ran the most successful chain of furniture stores in the Phoenix area. By his mid-30s, he was married to a former Miss Arizona, had three kids, and was a millionaire. He was also a hell of a golfer, near scratch. It was this recreational skill that helped him to meet people like future presidential nominee Barry Goldwater and New York Yankees co-owner and future owner of multiple Vegas casinos, Del Webb. His relationship with Del would later help Bill in his next career endeavor. But before all that could happen, Bill had to experience epic lows to balance out his great highs. First, Bill had marital issues, separated from his wife and started dating the daughter of his secretary, who was 17 years younger than him and only five years older than his oldest daughter. He eventually reconciled with his wife, but shortly after, she was diagnosed with heart issues and died at the age of 32. Of the many questionable decisions Bill would go on to make in his life, the first is probably the easiest to reconcile. Only nine months after his wife's death, he reconnected with the young woman he dated while they were separated. Less than two years later, he married her, a few days after her 21st birthday. Interestingly enough, they were married in Vegas at the Little Chapel of the West, a place that would one day be relocated to the Hacienda, only to be forced to relocate again 
when Circus Circus Enterprises bought it with plans to build Mandalay Bay. Personal life aside, business wasn't doing well either. Always looking out for his little brother, Bill turned over more of the responsibility of running the furniture stores to him. However, Bill's little brother wasn't nearly as good at his job as Bill was. Couple that with some bad investments, and just a year after his second wedding anniversary, Bill had to declare bankruptcy. Most people will tell you, you need to have at least one really big failure in your life before you can become a huge success. Well, he didn't know it at the time. This was that failure for Bill. Fast forward to years later, when Bill started making money at Circus Circus, he went back and paid everyone he owed money to, even though he was legally released from the obligation when he filed for bankruptcy. Attempting to start fresh and embarrassed by the failure of his furniture stores, Bill moved his family from Arizona to Nevada, where Dell Webb gave him and his wife their first jobs in the gaming industry. In the 60s, Dell Webb, a successful contractor responsible for the construction of the Flamingo in the Sahara, owned the Sahara in Vegas and in Tahoe, as well as the Mint on Fremont Street. Bill's first job in gaming was in 1965 as the host of Sahara Lake Tahoe, while his wife would work as the casino clerk. Many would look at this as a tremendous step back considering Bill's past successes, but he didn't look at it that way. Bill liked starting from the bottom, learning the business and working his way up the ladder. Just as he did with furniture, Bill took to gaming and hospitality and learned everything anyone would take time to teach him. He read anything he could get his hands on, set up a blackjack table in the garage at his home, and had the kids help him learn how to deal. He used what he learned about gaming not only to help dealers to identify potential cheaters, but he taught players how to play better. One casino manager complained to Dell about the latter, to which Dell responded, well, Bennett obviously knows more about the casino business than you do. Shortly after, Bill was promoted from host to casino manager. Bill continued to impress and move up the ranks. Within a year, Bill moved into the Mint in Vegas and was promoted to assistant general manager. Less than a year after that, he lost the assistant title and took the helm at the property. While running the Mint, Bill met the owner of the neighboring casino, Benny Binion, and the two quickly became friends. It was crystal clear that Benny understood the customers in a casino better than anyone in the business, and for the same reason, didn't mind sharing his knowledge with Benny. Some say that Benny saw a bit of himself in Bill. That and the Mint was only competition to the horseshoe in the sense that they both wanted to attract gamblers to play at their property, because the Mint was a grind joint, and the horseshoe attracted the highest of high rollers in the world. Benny described the layout of a slot floor like a grocery store. The essentials go in the back, so people have to walk past everything else to get to them. He taught Bill about pay tables for slot machines and that you should put machines with higher hold percentages on the end caps because those machines drew the most impulse play. You could also draw people into a casino by putting the busiest machines at the front of the property. In Bennett's second year at the Mint, it made $9 million in profit. The following year, he more than doubled that. Within five years, Bill Bennett was the head of all three of Dell Webb's Vegas properties. Bill's success attracted the attention of all in the Vegas market, including potentially the most important person of all at the time, Valley Bank of Nevada President E. Perry Thomas. Bill shared with E. Perry thoughts on how things could be done better in the industry, how pay structures could be improved to prevent turnover, 
Dell's company did a good job of recognizing talent and developing it, but back then, didn't offer incentives or bonuses to employees. Pay was largely all salary, and so talent would often get lured away by competition. Hell, Bill didn't even get a raise when the running of the Sahara fell to him in Vegas. He received no bonus for taking the company from one that lost money to one that generated seven and eight figure profits. Conversations like this evolved into the two discussing opportunities for Bill to buy his own property. That's how we met Bill Pennington. By 1968, Bill Pennington had made millions by purchasing seized blackjack machines from the state, putting random number generators in them, a new invention at the time, and leasing them to casinos. Before this, they had something of a predictable pattern. And if you were smart enough and invested enough time to discover what it was, you could take advantage of it. E. Perry introduced the two to each other, and they quickly became friends, despite not having much in common beyond the ambition to own their own casino. Pennington was described as someone you just wanted to hug, while Bennett was very cerebral, logistical, and calculating. The two realized their strengths and weaknesses complemented each other, and wasting no time, Pennington made Bennett a 50-50 partner in his company's Western Equities. Western Equities made roughly twenty dollars to $30,000 per day from the leasing of those blackjack machines, but the two knew it wasn't where their future lied. So with E. Perry's help, the three started looking at opportunities. Deals for the Landmark and Four Queens didn't work out, but in 1974, Thomas encouraged them to save Circus Circus. Jay Sarno was the visionary behind Caesar's Palace and the opulent theme. However, his second concept, Circus Circus, was as much of a failure as Caesar's was a success, pretty much from day one. There are many speculated reasons for Circus Circus' initial failure. Not having a hotel when it opened was definitely one of them, and it didn't help that he charged admission to enter the property, $2 for tourists and $1 for locals. However, possibly the biggest mistake was Sarno's inability to understand the audience his new concept attracted, Middle America. It's important to state at this time, Circus Circus was not opened as a family-friendly casino. In fact, the carnival games tended to reward players with live topless women. By 1974, not only did Jay Sarno want out, but the gaming board did as well. Or at least they wanted new owners so that they could get Tony the Ant Spilatro out, who it said used the gift shop at Circus Circus as a legitimate front. Things had gotten so bad that Sarno was not going to be able to make his next payroll. While interested in the property, Bennett and Pennington couldn't afford to buy a property on the Strip. Believing they could earn enough to buy it from all the profits it would make once they took over, E. Perry negotiated a deal for them to lease the casino with an option to buy. The deal allowed Jay Sarno to continue living in the penthouse of the recently built hotel and do pretty much whatever he wanted, including use the amenities. Now, some reports say that E. Perry expected the bills to fail and had brokered another deal for a second owner to purchase the property after they did and its value had substantially reduced as a result. However, since business in Vegas at the time was done with so little documentation, it's impossible to confirm the validity of such a claim. And considering the integrity with which E. Perry Thomas handled his businesses, it's highly unlikely. 
When Bennett and Pennington purchased Circus Circus in May of 1974, the buzz on the strip was it wouldn't last 90 days before going bankrupt. The property was losing half a million a month, and the new owners had no cash reserves to fall back on. If the casino had any chance of survival, it needed to make a profit fast. So they removed all the gimmicks. Carnival games were relocated to the second floor, where they are today, and adjusted to cater to children. The aerial acts and animals were kept for the first year while more pressing matters were addressed. All vendors, including Tony Spilatro, were bought out when they decided they wanted to run everything in-house. And the most important decision of all was the one that would come to redefine how business was done in Las Vegas. Their plan not only ensured they wouldn't go under in 90 days, from 1974 until the Mirage opened in 1989, no other property would make more money in Las Vegas than Circus Circus. Bennett had known for a long time that an entire market was being underserviced in Las Vegas, regardless of the fact that it was the largest demographic in the world, the middle market. While the entire strip focused on attracting high rollers, Bennett decided they wanted everybody else. High rollers can impact your bottom line as much negatively as they do positively if they get a run of hot cards. In the numbers game, a concept more commonly known as the law of averages, playing the percentages over time is how you come closer to those theoretical losses. Bill would often explain his market focus by simply saying, there are a lot more people in the world with nickels than with $100 bills. So they went after the customers that Caesar's Palace, the Dunes, and even Binion's didn't want. The people who lived on a budget enjoyed going to McDonald's as a treat and shopped at Walmart. These customers would come to be known as low rollers, and it was far more advantageous and cost-effective to lure 50 low rollers to Circus Circus with inexpensive rooms, food, and attractions for the kids than one high roller. In fact, those could all be loss leaders. The key to the success of this strategy would be full rooms all the time, and slot machines would be their bread and butter. Slot machines were where the real money was, another concept Bennett figured out before any other casino. The more those slot handles got pulled, the closer you come to the theoretical percentage that those machines would hold. Bennett understood low rollers. He knew they appreciated one-on-one -on -one interaction with the owner, as much if not more than a high roller does. He made the effort to not only go around and introduce himself to the guests, but would ask their opinions what they liked and didn't like about their stay. And when guests saw Bennett, the owner of a casino, doing something as simple as picking up scraps of garbage on the floor while making his rounds, something he was known to do and enjoy, low rolling guests found that they were not only able to identify with him, they developed a fierce loyalty to the property as a result. Dr. Dave Schwartz, the director for the Center of Gaming Research at UNLV said, if the Mirage had never been built, the Excalibur, would be the model everyone in the market followed. No one in Vegas history marketed better to those who made less than 100,000 per year than Circus Circus. Understanding that high rollers flew to Vegas and low rollers drove to it, they marketed heavily to roadside billboards and radio ads, making sure people knew that rooms at Circus Circus were nearly always under $20 a night. Bennett also loved doing marketing research and learning what more he could be doing to attract customers. Two of his favorite numbers to review 
were the numbers of people who had gone through his buffet each day and the slot revenues because those were their key customers. He listened to his employees when they talked about customer behavior. He would have someone drive through the parking lots of other casinos making note of all the different states people were visiting from based on where their license plates were from. Periodically, he would have one of his guys go over to the competition with $500 to play slots and chat up people to find out why they decided to patronize the specific property they were in. These strategies were so successful that not only was Circus Circus frequently sold out, but deals were cut with nearby properties to accommodate their excess until additional hotel towers were constructed to supply the demand. Those that couldn't be accommodated at Circus Circus were given discount coupons to encourage them to still patronize the property. This practice virtually invented the concept of casino comps for non-high rollers. Rumors of such high roller-esque treatment to low rollers spread quickly. Bennett was a stickler for the bottom line, and he loved a good deal. He advocated buying in bulk to save money. Once, his food and beverage manager got a great deal on ketchup. Knowing how much Bennett loved french fries and ketchup, he bought 25,000 bottles or more. However, one day, as Bennett was enjoying his fries, he noticed the ketchup wasn't the same that he was used to. Irritated at the situation, he asked why they changed it. Once his manager explained the cost-benefit, Bennett supported the decision. However, asked that his ketchup of preference be available for only him to use. It was also well documented that Bennett loved his employees. His kids would joke that it sometimes felt like their father cared more about his employees than he did his children. He paid close attention to them, knew if their grandparents were sick or if their kids were trying out for organized sports at school. He made notes of their strengths and weaknesses and rewarded those that showed promise. He not only rewarded his executives, but everyday employees as well. This sort of practice would help his employees also develop a fierce loyalty to their boss. Bill enjoyed mentoring those he saw potential in. The Circus Circus Management Training Program firmly believed you couldn't oversee any part of the business unless you were able to perform to the standards the employees in those jobs did. So, the program required you to work every job in the property. Housekeeping, casino cage, valet, craps, blackjack, literally everything. The program could take an excess of three years to complete. Bennett also didn't believe in big salaries for potential. Instead, he offered reasonable to low-end salaries with huge bonuses based on performance. If you were good, your bonuses would make you the highest paid person in your position in Las Vegas. Those with a track record of success found themselves with new cars, access to the company's private jet, and various other amenities. He felt that those who helped make the company successful should all share in the benefits of that success. His company's practice was called into question when he took Circus Circus Enterprise public. One banker asked, why do you give 15% of your bottom line to your management? Bill replied, because I get the other 85%. Make no mistake, you had to tolerate some pretty erratic behavior to work for Bill Bennett. There are many accounts of Bill yelling from his office for people, then upon entering, would scribble down a note, crumble it up, and throw it at you, then yell at you to pick it up and read it, only to find out you just received a bonus worth as much as your annual salary, and told, if you continue to keep doing the work you're doing, you'll get one of those every three months. Oh, 
and the better you do, the bigger it'll get. It was also made very clear that you did not discuss your bonus with anyone or it would be the last time that you got one. Realizing how serious the request was, but also understanding how hard it would be to keep a check the size of your annual salary a secret from your wife, one employee asked permission to tell his wife. Bill contemplated the request for a long minute before saying, if you absolutely have to, I guess it's okay, but only your wife, no one else. Bill's philosophy was, he paid his people to do a job right. You shouldn't be complimented for doing your job. And he hated when someone didn't know the answer to his questions. Phrases like, I'll look into it, or we're working on it, were not tolerated. That being said, it was better to admit you didn't know the answer, get berated for it, and come back later with the right answer than to give a wrong answer because you were guessing. Being wrong was ultimately worse than making him wait for the right answer. You had to have thick skin to work for Bill Bennett and know when to open your mouth and when to shut it. Bennett was a master at listening, sometimes leaving such long, uncomfortable pauses that people found themselves continuing to talk just to fill the void, and in some cases, saying more than they should have. Bill also had no patience for small talk. One story tells of a time when a slot manager, trying to impress Bill with his ambition and how good he was at his job, told Bill that he was bored and didn't have enough to do. He wanted more responsibilities. Bill responded, I'll give you something else to do. Go look for a new job. You're fired. He also seemed to have a photographic memory when it came to conversations. And when he found inconsistencies in your statement, could quote them back to you and tear them apart piece by piece. He was a stickler for the details and would challenge you with seemingly insignificant questions out of the blue. Like, what is the sale price of a specific item in the gift shop? Or, are we using fresh orange juice or fresh squeezed orange juice in the coffee shop? Regardless of your answer, he would follow up to see if you were right. He was also a bit of a tyrant who liked to use vagaries to cause unease and shake things up. One story tells of an impromptu meeting that all the top guys in the company had 10 minutes to get to. Once they were there, Bennett explained how disappointed he was with some of the people in that room. He wouldn't call out any specific person or department nor exactly what the issue was, just that procrastination isn't something that would be tolerated. He gave them all plaques with the word procrastination and its definition on it to put on their desks because he wanted them to see it every day and make sure that they never do it again, then dismissed the meeting. No one ever found out who or what he was talking about. Another example of Bennett's erratic and irrational behavior comes from a story involving his son. He was working for his father on the slot routes and eventually earned his way up to general manager. One day, he was called into his direct reports office and fired because the property had experienced the largest drop in revenue. Shortly after, while packing his things up, he received a call back informing him that it was an accounting error and that he wasn't fired. A few minutes later, he received yet another call informing him that, per his father's instructions, the company had a policy to never hire a general manager back after they had been fired. And so he was still fired. Bill's son admits, if he were anyone other than his father, he could have easily sued the company for this, but he never pursued such legal actions. Bill's success streak continued when he purchased Slots of Fun in 1979. 
at that time. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Hey!